0: futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech policy business models social dynamics and the environment i'm your host tron unheim futurist and author in episode 108 of the podcast the topic is play uncertainty and growth our guest is klaus rosted futurist and director at the college of extraordinary experiences in this conversation we talk about playful productivity how learning, how to see the world in a different way can unlock growth, designing role plays to expand human professional experiences, and how teaching has been in a terrible place for hundreds of years, and about the emotional connection to books. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thanks so much. Let's begin.
1: Klaus, how are you? Well, just American, and I'll just say I'm great, man.
2: (laughs) As you wish. As you wish. But uh, I think we do share that. Uh, It's a frustration, kind of. Uh, I've gotten used to it. I start my podcast this way, you now threw me off because I actually wasn't interested. <laughs>
1: <laughs> at least you're not a cashier at a supermarket. I've never learned to tackle that. They're sitting there and they're kind of doing their groceries and they say, how are you, sir? What if I answer, I'm actually feeling pretty badly, like, okay, thank you. It's going to be twelve ninety nine. What What's it going to change? <laughs>
2: That's uh, the problem with this phrase is that you rarely actually have the time to listen to the answer. But, you know, the other context here is that we actually have some time. We, so, do. we so, do. So, so we're, we're going to get to this. I, I will talk about you instead. So you are a productivity expert, uh, innovation expert. You've been featured, I think, everywhere, probably due to some uh, cinematic qualities of, your, uh, you know, of yours. Uh, but anyway, you, you've run something called the College of Extraordinary Experiences. I'm curious about that. Uh, and uh, McKinsey has used you as a coach. You're author of some 34 books. That's, uh, I think, a talking point in and of itself, especially since you say that you don't like writing books. Um, you have a past in reality TV. That's a world that I don't know anything about. So, you know, we, you know, I don't know what, what that world is all about. I don't know if I can ask you questions about it either. Um, I'm told to expect the unexpected from you, Klaus, but we have talked before, and some of it was expected, and, and, and yeah, a little bit of it was unexpected. That's a very, very high bar.
1: It, it is a high bar, it's not one I've said. It's, it's a, the words were spoken by a friend of mine when he was the global innovation manager at IKEA, and he said something like, with Klaus, expect the unexpected, and then he didn't have to describe who I was or what I did. So I think it was just his way of, of not doing his own work.
2: Either way, the field that you kind of have pioneered, experience design and storytelling, these these kinds of things are, they have always been important, of course, right? They're, they're one of the the original experiences of humankind and they have little to do in principle with technology, which is fascinating and fantastic because it frees you up so much. Give the people listening just a sense of how you started exploring these things and what your path has been, and then
1: we can, you know, dive into some stuff. So like everybody else who has ended up somewhere they didn't expect, my path has been meandering at best and chaotic, uh, even better. And what, what I mean by that is I started out as a role-playing enthusiast, and I actually managed to make live-action role-playing my job after I dropped out of the university about 20 years ago. And and even more strangely, I managed to build what would become the world's largest live-action role-play studio. And then a couple of years ago, I saw it crash and burn due to too many dreams and too little business sense, leaving me with... Roughly a million dollars in personal debt. Don't do that is going to be my first piece of advice to our listeners. Do not end with a million dollars in personal debt. It's really not as fun as it sounds. No, no. And uh, and that meant I had this creative background and this huge debt that I needed to kind of reinvent myself. So it was either roll over and die, which would have been a, a very fair thing to do. But I was lucky enough that I had options. So I, I figured out how could I take this creative past and this kind of pushing boundaries and doing things differently and, and uh, combining stories and experiences with basically anything. And how could I turn that into a little bit of a more corporate gig? And that's what I've been doing ever since. So,
2: All right. Many questions. The 34 (laughs) books, where do they fit in this picture? Are they before the crisis or during the crisis or were there a response to the crisis? They're both. So
1: the 34 books come from a bit of a weird coincidence. And that is that we live in a time where books have a special status. And by that, I mean that you and I are both of a certain age. And we both grew up in a world where if you wanted to learn something, let's say about volcanoes, then you could either sit around the TV and wait for something for volcanoes to appear. That wasn't easy. You could turn on the radio and wait for volcanoes, also not a really good bet, or you could find a book about it. There was no internet, or if the internet was in its very early stages, it wasn't just you picked up your phone, you typed in volcanoes, and you learn everything there is to know and more to it. You actually had to go places, like a library. And my mother is a librarian, was for her entire career, so I grew up with books. And I grew up with the idea that books had a certain magic to them, that if you read something in a book, there was a good chance that somebody knew what they were talking about, because that's how books used to be. In the 80s, if you wanted to publish a book, you needed to go through any number of gatekeepers, publishers, editors, layouters, all sorts of things to get that book to stand on a shelf and actually end up in somebody's home or in a library. And that's how a lot of us feel emotionally about books. If it's in a book, it must be worth something. So
2: you went from being very big on kind of oral storytelling to then still having this sense that even though we are traditionalists, a lot of us are, you know, and and I guess you're speaking about your clients as well who are that age. They they want to see it in a book before they believe that you can do other things that now, are maybe more natural.
1: To a you. little bit like that, but also more that because books have this idea that the difference between me telling you something and you reading it in my book is pretty big, even though it's the same stuff. I can tell you, here's my model for how to do development of creative projects. And you'll say, okay, sounds interesting. But if you read it in my book, how to develop creative projects, it suddenly has some authority to it. Because yeah. that's what we're used to. And when I figured that out many years ago, I started doing books. And it turns out books are not that hard to do if you know what you're doing. And once you do more of them, they get even easier. And suddenly they, all this weight of, of kind of knowledge, et cetera, I could put it into book form. And it was taken much more seriously than it was just when it was just me who said it, even though it was the same stuff. So, it's a, it's a so so
2: program. then you use you use the books then you know that they are of course more than a marketing tool because they are they are books but you you use them as an integrated part of your your creative Bingo.
1: practice. Bingo. Yes, and that's also what I do now. So, good example is the innovation cycle, which I have in my hand right here, was written to kind of help establish myself in the innovation sphere, and it took three weeks. And for most people, writing a book in three weeks is not actually, it's not something they do. But if you know what you're doing, then it's not that impossible. And it's gotten a lot all right.
2: of feedback. All right, so, so listen, you know what you're doing. Give give us a hint. How do you write a book in
1: three weeks? Aha, thanks for asking. Well, first off, you do it one chapter at a time. And the second, the second part is, it's all in the structure. When you take a book and it's this massive 400 pages, something, the history of volcanoes and everything about them. And you're sitting there, you know where you want to get, but you don't know how to get there. If you just make it into tiny, small pieces, so you just need to write one page at a time, then it's suddenly very easy because we can all write one page about something we know. So it's all about filtering that massive thing, which is a book, into small components and then just ticking the boxes one day at a time.
2: Look, uh, just to demonstrate how much uh, smarter you are than me, I wrote a book in two months. So I spent longer and it's like 450 pages and has like 50 pages of uh, a reference section. That was a absolute nightmare to write. I had to write it, but I should have obviously opted for the kind of book that you write, which is shorter and snappier. So this is partly why we're doing this podcast.
1: I mean, two months—that's pretty impressive for 450 pages. And I think it leads us to 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 one of the bizarre things. This we talked a little bit about how books used to be a, a place of authority; they still are, but nobody wants to read the damn thing.
2: That's true. Well, this is I have discovered since I wrote this and other books that are 400 pages. Nobody I mean, wants to is, read them. Yeah. So why do I do that? I, I think it's more about my own internal psyche. <laughs>
1: but what it does to keep on the serious point here what it does is once you've written the 450 pages it means that people know that you know your stuff so when you then sell them the workshop or the seminar or they watch the ted talk they'll know the book is there so there's a certain irony that we want the 400 page book to exist but we don't want to read it we want the 20 page summary or the 10 page the 10 minute ted talk we don't want to read the book but we want it to exist
2: that's funny you said that but look it it is, it is an important discussion because it's not just about marketing, right? I mean, it is actually about humanity and learning. And you and I had this earlier discussion on teaching and learning. and And I I think, you know, learning hasn't been on a good path. No, you know, no, no, no. <laughs> it, just, oh. it's like it's the most fundamental thing. And you would think humans had figured that out because apparently we have figured out so many other things. But when it comes to teaching stuff to people, which is somewhat of an expertise of yours. It seems like mm, the whole world is, has been on like a crash course with, uh, with a, doing the wrong things. We have experimented, right? There's technology, there's all kinds of stuff. What's been wrong with teaching the way that it has been Done.
1: We we it was and it, sadly the way it's still done in many places is that teaching is now its own ecosystem with its own rules and its own authority to it that is not necessarily connected to the real world. And a good example is how exams take place. Exams in many places in the world, and I've went through the public school system and high school, a little bit of university in Denmark, and, and I know this is this is the case for many places, is you learn a lot of stuff, you cram knowledge into your head, and then to test that to show how good you are or whether you've gotten it, you do like a 20-minute or 30-minute or a, a one-hour exam, and then you're graded on that. So it's basically you go to the World Cup, you play the final, and bam, either you win or you lose. But reality is for most of us, that's not what our days look like. Our real days are more like you do the thing, and then your boss says, put it in red and then I like it. And then you go back, you put it in red, you come back and then it works. But we don't do exams like that. If you wanted to do an exam that would teach you anything about reality for most of us, then you do the same 30 minutes and then you'd have the examiner look at it. And then they'd say, here are eight things that I'd like you to improve. And then you come back 20 minutes later and then you've improved them and then say, great. You've shown now you can do research, you can do communication, but you also understand how to do improvement. Just that simple small thing is so far from our daily realities yet it's a core part of many school systems this exam idea
2: look the the strangest experience I had was you know and I'm a you know obedient Norwegian student uh, from my upbringing and then I end up in Italy on these you know wonderful Erasmus scholarship things and guess what my exam looked like for one of the courses so I show up expecting to be tested on, you know, all these books that I had read in Italian. And then the professor who is a little bit untraditional, basically, first, all the teaching assistants, everyone, they're all sitting around the round table. So you know, it's, it's also not a, you know, just a one to one (coughs) type of exam, it's everyone's there, and they haven't even controlled. like there's an audience too. there's like everyone's just hanging around. And they're eating. I like so they're it. starting to serve food and then and they serve me limoncello, you know, like actual liqueur. Yeah. And then they say, Tron, you come join us. I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> Isn't this the exam? When does the exam start? And it's like, no, this is it. Just don't worry. And I don't know. He I just asks that. a bunch of questions interspersed with him talking for 10 minutes. And then at some point I'm kind of wondering, so is this, when is the exam going to start? And it's like, oh yeah, we're done with that part. This was just a good discussion. You, you passed. His, you, you get 20 out of 20.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> I love And, that. you know, uh, right? That is, that is, yeah. More of that and, and kind of on a... It's the only time it ever happened. <laughs> I wish it would happen more. And I think, but I think the, the, the crazy part is not only that this is, I think, more how it should be, but for most people, that's not even a, yeah, we could do it that way. It's like they couldn't even discuss doing it that way I've, I've found that there's a there's a german university i help with doing uh online kind of teach their online teaching i help them develop some of their courses and one of the things we're doing right now which is not a big thing but it's still big enough that we can't do more which is to take their their teaching and then make them do uh simulation teaching so if you're learning about a company, some sort of leadership thing, you need to actually produce something that could be in the real world, like a press release or a memo to the shareholders or a onboarding guide for new employees, something that smacks a little bit of reality, even if it's just simulation. Even that is like, whoa, okay. And that's, that's, they're cool because they're innovating, but they, they also know that they can push it to this. They can't get anywhere near the Italian limoncello, which would be. To me, even better. So, so it's a slow, slow, big, cumbersome behemoth to deal with this educational ecosystem. So you work
2: then uh, with universities, even as clients. I, that's, that's great. What are some of the corporates interested in when it comes to sort of play and, and, and growth? Because this this topic has been out there for a while, right? You're not the first consultant to come in and, you no. know, come help us close, sh- come and shake, shake us up a little bit. Yeah, no, no,
1: no, not at all, not at all. And, and what the ironic thing is, <laughs> and, and I hate saying this, but it's sadly very, very true, is what most people say we want to be shaken up we want it to be different we want to think differently we want to see something new just as long as it's safe and kind of the same that yeah, people, they want both people want They're... change they just don't want things to be different and if they want things to be different and this is this is a crucial thing i learned uh, a little bit too late that's put it that way is if they want change they want change for other people very rarely do i meet people who come up and say I want you to challenge my beliefs so much that I get mad at you because then I know I'm going to learn and grow. But they're more than happy to say, I want you to take this group, my students or my team or my leadership or whatever. And I want you to shake them up because they could, they could use some shaking up. And this goes well until you also then point the the camera at the person hiring you or bring you in and saying, and actually Anna here, he's part of the problem. And then Ana goes, "Oh shit! I thought I was safe from the innovation stuff. I thought I thought that I brought in the gorilla, and then it's not going to hit me." And even there is where some of the real pain lies. So, so they want change; they just want it the same.
2: How do you balance that, though? Because I could, I could see you, someone who at least at times tries to challenge that. I cheat.
1: I cheat a lot. I do all sorts of tricks. I use behavioral design tricks en masse, and I also do a ton of framing. So so when I say framing, the difference between coming into a room and saying, hey, for the next two hours, we're going to play around with your minds, and some of the time you're going to hate us, and that's okay. In fact, that's part of the process. Then suddenly you have a lot more license than if you go in and do the exact same thing with no warning because then when they hate you, they're not going to say, oh, it's part of the process. Maybe it's not working. Now, some of them do it anyway. Some of them, even if you tell them we're going to provoke you, we're going to test your boundaries, then and then they walk out because they feel this was not what they wanted. But then you have the ones who are still listening. You can say, and this, to take a real-world example, we were doing a thing with uh, a big Swedish furniture giant, which I may not name, or I, I'm actually allowed to name them, but we are doing something with their shopping centers and they wanted to know how it was to be in the hamster wheel, because that's what their customers feel like. They're in the hamster wheel. And we did a thing where they got a little taste of that. And some of them walked out after one and a half hour, they walked out and said, this is silly. We're not learning anything. This is terrible. We're leaving. These guys are assholes. And that meant we took the, the, the. It, Only a few of them walked out. We had 100 left, so it was okay. And then we said, so remember when you wanted to understand your customers? Now, you had some people here who walked out after one and a half hour frustration, and one of your customers' major trend needs is they want to feel they're not in the hamster wheel. How can you design for people who are in the hamster wheel if you walk out after one and a half hour frustration and a voluntary exercise that you're getting paid for with people you like? you think you maybe need a bit of perspective and then the rest were like oh oh shit yeah yeah this yeah we get it so use it it and in, and that's also framing instead of saying oh shit we fucked it up and and it was bad because we lost two people we said we lost two people and that actually proves our point hmm. you do
2: very challenging work i mean this is it's bordering on collective therapy
1: almost There's a good friend of mine who is uh, one of the kind of McKinsey experts on culture, really amazing guy, Nicola Jurisic, who who happens to be both a McKinsey expert on culture, which is like very numbers based and very scientific and very kind of factual and also deals with things like collective trauma and emotional trauma and so on. And he's a specialist in both worlds. So so I'd say, yes, there is some of that. But it's also, I think, my secret, at least, is not treating it that way, but more treating it like humans being humans and being mm-hmm. playful and being silly and being dumb and allowing them to have that space, to have fun instead of, because trauma, it sounds so serious. If I go, Yeah, through, no, I wasn't uh, trying
2: to say that it is uh, it necessarily, is. necessarily it that is. serious. But, I mean, you are playing on the strings that does bring out things in people that yes. they maybe don't. Want to see, um, and you're playing, I guess, on a repertoire in an organization where 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 these things start to come out.
1: So, yes, and and uh. it's it, I think the 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 fun and easy part of it is getting to be the jokester, getting to be the provocateur, getting to come in and say, everybody, put off your pants, like what 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 what? Do-? No, okay, I was just t- testing to see who was actually going to do it. That sort of part part is is fun and easy. The tricky part is when people aren't in the mood for that, when they're not just, when they want to know, okay, why are we doing stuff? Linking the fun and silly and crazy and weird to actual KPIs and ROI and kind of to, to, to corporate reality. That's where it gets tricky.
2: But but that's also where your magic comes in, right? Because playful productivity, which is kind of your specialty, I guess, it isn't just about play. No, I, or, no, no, no. or play isn't just, you know, I, I guess it gets misconstrued. I mean, tell, you tell me what, what play is, because it's so often you sort of think it is only those tricks. And I think you, hit,
1: but, you, you know. just said it. You said play isn't just. And that's the core. There's so many people, there's so much tradition, especially America. Woo-hoo where play is seen as kind of the opposite of seriousness, the opposite of learning. It's like people say things like, oh, but it wasn't work. I was having fun. Or how can this be serious? I'm having too much fun. Or yes, it's good that I had fun, but I want to learn stuff too. And all the research says you learn more when you're having fun. You work better when you're having fun. You're more open. All these sorts of things. We know this. It's, it's there. But we still have this feeling that it's cheating, that, that there's this, especially in kind of in teaching, there's this weird thing that's about either you can have fun or you can learn. But the reality is you learn a lot better when you're having fun. And, and I still don't, I don't get why we don't teach teachers how to be fun because there's so much research showing if you're a fun teacher you're going to have better students who have a better time and who learn more
2: but no well i've certainly experienced that but my question would be it's all good if you are a teacher that somehow you know enables that fun but but you know when you come in and you're fun or you know you foster an environment where people actually Do learn in a new way. How how can organizations sustain that? So that you know, maybe that where your book comes in, or where you obviously are paid over time, you come back uh, again and again. But there is something about your approach, though, that is sort of uh, ephemeral. It's it's hard to kind of sustain that kind of energy unless they somehow organically start developing it. So I wanted you to talk to that a little bit because, okay, so individually, I'm sure it works for you because you have to come back in and and generate that next year or, or next month. But how can we, if we don't have all those secrets, how can we start embodying more of that natural learning? You know, and people say, "Oh, you know, be like you were when you were a child." But a lot of us weren't that playful as children either. No, no, no. This, this is I, was, not. This is not easy. This is not easy stuff. How
1: do you teach that? I make it easy. I, I make it simple. I make it <laughs> understandable. And and part of that is by tapping into what people already do and what they want to do. Because and, and you hit it elegantly on the nail by saying if you tell somebody be as you were when you were a child that's a super complex thing it's like asking somebody to say pretend you are a medieval monk this is going back to the role-playing past pretend you're a medieval monk most people will be like uh how do i do that but if you say put on this costume walk around this abbey tend the flowers read the bible prepare the porridge hit yourself when you feel you're thinking bad thoughts sleep in an austere room, then you're like, oh, yeah, I can do all these things. These things are simple. Some of them might be interesting. Some of them might be boring. But you can do all of them easily. And then when I say, oh, so you're now a monk. And you say, oh, when did I become a monk? Well, when you start doing A, B, C, D, E. So instead of saying be like you were when you were a child, which is complex and vague, say whenever you write an email and you want to write something, you want to put a smiley in there. Put that smiley in there. Don't delete it because it's unprofessional. Put the smiley in there. Write to the guy. If you're thinking, I'm going to contact the tax services and I want to write to them, I am a doofus because I don't understand web pages, so I have a problem, write that to them. Don't write to them, dear sir, I'm writing according to the statutes of this and this problem that I want to discuss with your leadership. Write to them, I am a stone-cold lizard. Sadly, lizards are not good at taxes. I need help. Smiley. They They printed out that mailtron. They printed out my tax mail in the Danish tax services. They printed it out, put it in the office on the wall, and showed it to colleagues. And I wrote... I am something like I am. I am a useless lizard. Um, I'm better at doing fun stuff than administration. Please, I need help. I want to pay taxes. I just don't know how much my company owes you. Something like that, and they printed it out and they showed it to colleagues. And that's what I try to teach people: is not to do things that are to do things that are simple and clear, to make those tiny changes. And whether it's instituting stuff in your organization, let's say you start doing. Uh, failure Fridays were at the Friday bar. One person a week tells a story about how they did something stupid and, and how they learned from it. That's a way of instituting a more failure positive culture, or whether it's you have to high five your colleagues when you come into work. I worked at a children's institution many years ago where that was the rule. You came in and you had to high five your colleagues. You went around the house and you high fived everybody who was already at work. It was a simple, small thing but it just puts smiles on people's faces. That's that's the trick for me, is making it simple, understandable, and doable. Because be like a child is true, but it's also super complex.
2: How do you stay at the top of your game, Klaus, in, in your game? How do you get inspired yourself? Because you, you seem, you know, you're, you're a creative individual. Somehow, you know, we haven't talked so much about, you know, your upbringing and how you got to where you are, really. But regardless where you started, all of this stuff sounds very challenging. It's not like you can go in to work with a client and have a bad, you know, you can have a bad day, but you, you need to build on a, a, a repertoire
1: and you need to refresh that repertoire. Where do you get your inspiration from? Part of it is one of the things I try to teach is be inspired by everything. One of the squirrel powers of my playful productivity universe is be like a squirrel, be inspired by everything. Be inspired by My Little Pony, the TV series that your daughter watches. Be inspired by nature. Be inspired by a speech by Hitler. I mean, there's so many things that we decide not to be inspired by. I'm not talking about things that, that like looking at a wall and just saying, oh, this is so inspiring. But I'm talking about allowing ourselves to be inspired by things that move us or enchant us or just get us like, oh, that's cool instead of trying to say, oh but serious people don't do this. So I, I allow myself to get enthusiastic about really weird stuff, whether it's Russian whale, railway history in the 1800s or it's sitting down and watching my little pony with saga. I usually find something that's oh, that is cool, that is inspiring. And if a day will give me like 10 or 20 or 30 of these moments, Then I usually find a way to pack them into my next lecture or my next teaching session or my next something. And some of them stick, and then they become kind of cornerstone stories or or cornerstone concepts that I can use anywhere.
2: How do you capture these thoughts that you have? Because we can all have like fleeting thoughts. We're thinking something like, mm, I, this is interesting or it's interesting to me. And then, but then, you know, we either just, I mean, I, I have a lot of these thoughts and I, I maybe I don't write them down or maybe I just try them out as a joke and then I go, oh, no, that's a daddy joke. That's not funny, right? And then it falls flat and you're like, oh yeah, that wasn't so good. H- how do you uh, decide and know you must experiment a bit, a bit. A lot. I mean, not I all your ideas all are going to be life-changing <laughs> no. and going to put up on the wall in tax
1: offices, right? No no, 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 not at all. A lot of my ideas are really bad, and, and I experiment a lot, and I try to experiment where it doesn't hurt too much. And then if it does, then I maybe kind of, oh, okay, I don't do that again, or I do it in a more safe environment, but I experiment a ton. And when I stumble on something I find interesting, it's that I use it, I introduce it, and then maybe it becomes part of the repertoire. And we all have this repertoire of our, whether it's our great stories or our great taglines or our great jokes or, or great points, that we kind of, we all have these with us. I just kind of constantly... Put new stuff into that bag, so it's ever changing. And then, of course, there are some olden, olden but goldies that that can be brought out anywhere. I have a couple of stories that I can make fit any environment because they can. They're so good as stories that they can be used to prove any number of points.
2: <laughs> That's clever. So you can always throw out this 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 small set of stories, and it'll it'll help you out of a of a it, it, exactly. back alley.
1: And, and I'll give you one, and it's going to be short, and this is not even mine, but it's the, the joke I quote most from my stepfather. I have a wonderful stepfather who is a professor of computer science, so he's this very positivistic, sciency, kind of math, logic-oriented man. And one of the, the things he said many years ago, we were talking about statistics. He says, well, statistics is good. Um, statistics is great, and it also teaches you that if you want to get people to stop talking about statistics, you just tell them about the two bombs on a plane. They're like, two bombs on a plane? what, what you? Well, it's very simple. We know when you go air traveling, there's always a chance there's a terrorist with a bomb. It's a very small chance, but there's a chance. Maybe it's 0.003%. You get into that Lufthansa flight, and there's a terrorist with a bomb. Now, my stepfather a bit older, so this was especially funny in the 70s with the Meinhof gang and that sort of thing. Uh, So how do you kind of, how do you deal with that? How do you get rid of that fear? It's easy. just bring your own bomb because the chances of two people on the same flight, having a bomb (laughs) is much less. And of course, everybody laughs because everybody knows this is not, it it doesn't change anything, but statistically, then you're doing something. And then the people are like statistics, statistics. Okay. Then they shut up. Got it. I love it. I
2: love it. So just bring your own bomb. I got it. Yeah. Cool. All right. So stories. I mean, the stories we tell and uh, the way we try to, uh, to 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 teach and learn. What what do you what are you um, thinking about the the next decade, Klaus? A lot of stuff has happened. I'm sure you, like all of us, right? We have had these corona restrictions. We have lived through a lot. Luckily, we're here, um, but we have lost people around us, and um, it's a, di- you know, in a way, it's a different decade than. We often it could have perhaps imagined. I don't know if you you, you you spend a little bit of time thinking about the future. What do you think is is happening now? What, what do you see?
1: I think one thing, and, and I'm, I'm not the only one who sees this, but one of the things that both excites me and scares me the most is there's a quote from the Canadian prime minister, Justin Trudeau. He said a couple of years ago at the World Economic Forum, he said, the pace of change will never again be this slow. And when I heard that, I heard it at a McKinsey conference said by somebody else, and I thought, ooh, ow. He did not say the pace of change will never again be this fast. And he said, no, the pace of change will never again be this slow. So we're all of us going through this, oh, the world is spinning faster and things are moving faster. And a Fortune 500 company used to have a 90-year age. Now it has 16 years, that sort of thing. The world is just moving faster, and it's never going to be this slow again. And to me, that says a lot about the world we're moving into that we think we're barely hanging on right now. Because everything's going fast, everything's different, everything's like, can't we just get a break? And it's never gonna be this relaxed and this slow again. And that to me is both extremely scary and extremely exciting. As I mean, I could talk about a lot of mega trends, that sort of thing, but that to me is is the core of it all from a human perspective
2: yeah i mean speed is is both scary and exhilarating right i mean we we want it we crave it but when you uh when you're not prepared for it
1: yes oh oh so much yes and and there's another thing that also kind of again scares and excites me but also provides me with jobs so that helps which is that nobody ever predicted how much new technology, new ideas, new whatever would influence things. Even the most farsighted, crazy technology futurists uh, or, or movement futurists, they look at things and they say, wow, this is going to have an impact. But nobody foresaw how big an impact the smartphone would have or the women's liberation movement or the, the decolonization of Africa or whatever it is we're looking at, things always matter more than even the wildest dreamers in the moment think they do. And there's this beautiful IBM guy who in 1943 says, computers in the future will probably only weigh 1.5 tons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. in
2: mean, these kinds of things, taken uh, and, a
1: few years and, and later. It's, it's, and, and that reminds me and keeps me humble, because even though I find myself as somebody who's able to envision the future and sometimes kind of sell that as a talent that look a little bit further than, than six months or 12 months or, or so on, then even I know I'm gonna be dead wrong. Even I know that the things where I think this is gonna be different, I've, I've got nothing. I mean, I may see 1% or 5%, but I know that there are some things that are just gonna be completely different in five years, 10 years, 20 years. When my daughter becomes an adult, the world's gonna be so different in some ways and so much the same in others. And right now, I've got no clue which will be which.
2: Well, I'm almost more interested in the things that will stay the same. I find that as a futurist, or, you know, which for me is a little bit of an uncomfortable label and something I couldn't do when I had an academic employer. You just, the moment you get rid of your academic employer, you can call yourself whatever you want. Exactly. Right? It's lovely, right? Yeah. And so you see what kind of freedom. But, but I mean, the stuff that stays the same is usually the stuff that people don't want to hear about. Yet it is what puts everything else into place because, you know, there may be one or two technologies that really change things but it is the things that don't change that puts everything else and makes that one change so impactful um and i've and i wanted to comment on on another thing with futurism because a lot of people say it's not really predicting what's going to happen in the future that is the hard thing it is predicting exactly when certain things will happen so i mean Yes, we didn't foresee the smartphone, but but you know some some of us saw that it was being developed. But even if you saw that the smartphone is going to change things, to say that it's going to change things in the '90s and then again in the 2000s, and then we're going to have this massive TikTok thing that's going to really you know change the teenagers. Like if you, if you were able to say pinpoint like by year when these things were going to emerge because of a confluence of factors and business forces. I mean, not only would you be a genius, you would be wealthy and you would be deserved to be a futurist. I, I get the sense that most futurists kind of give up on trying to predict very much. Are you still a predictive futurist?
1: No, no. I'm much more a micro predictive, much more that in certain fields, we will see this sort of thing. And in other fields, we will see this sort of thing. So, so, one, just to give one like tiny example, is that auto, uh, automated cars. We all know they're coming. We know some people say two years, some say five, some say 10, some say 20, but we know these things are happening. Now, where I find something that's interesting is the moment you have an automated car, then somebody's going to hook that up to a container home, and suddenly they have a transportable home. So they wake up in Berlin. And then while they're working, the car takes them, their house, to Paris. And suddenly they live in Paris with all of their belongings, all of their stuff. That sort of thing, is that going to be something for the tiny, weird, creative elites? Is that going to be a mainstream thing? Is that going to be something that fizzes and nobody cares about? Or is it going to be, oh, now we're suddenly all have houses on wheels because that means that once you're above a certain level of of wealth, having that mobility changes completely how you go on vacations, how you work, how you meet, how you all sorts of things. To me, the interesting stuff is looking at some of these micro things and seeing it could go these four ways, which one, not so much which one do you think is right, but which ones should you prepare for? Or which ones should you just say, okay, I'll see if that happens or this happens. Because there are so many things where, We can just see whether one or two or three is going to happen. It's not really going to affect me. I don't need to plan because either I can't plan or it's going to be the same. And some things I need to realize, here are these three alternatives coming, and I need to plan for if it's number three, then I need to start taking swimming lessons because we're all going to be on islands. And if it's one or two, then I don't.
2: But it goes to your imagination point, right? Because you can be a futurist, and you could even be correct technically about the predictions. You could be like this cold uh, statistical futurist who predicts that you know uh, it's going to take 19 years, and then we'll have full automation of of cars or you know you know autonomous cars. But if you have no idea what that means, then your prediction, you know, what does your prediction do? You because you're leaving it all up to the recipients they're like okay here here's the timeline i figured it all out well that doesn't say anything no right because you have to figure out well what does this all mean like and and how did we get there and and you know who's who's winning who's losing and how does it feel to be in that world even if it turns out that way
1: and I, i think part of that part of the kind of the next part of what you're saying is i think that the world is going to be belong more and more to the surfers And when I say the surfers, it's not because of global warming and and rising uh, seas, but to the people who can navigate chaos and who say, I don't need to have a five-year plan. I just need to know when the next wave is coming. And if I deal with every wave nicely, then at some point I'll have gotten to those five years. Because there are some places where you want to know, okay, you want to make a plan for like the next 50 years. You want to do this, and then we do this, and then we do this. But so much of it comes from, so much of new thinking and new ways of doing things come from places we never imagined. My favorite current example is from vertical farming, which may completely upend how we think of agriculture. And the biggest development in vertical farming, like indoor salads and that sort of thing in in warehouses, is from new lighting technology, the development of the LED light bulb was the biggest game-changer in vertical farming in many, many years because it suddenly cut the prices for the artificial light. So something that could upend agriculture globally on a huge scale, well, the biggest development there happened not in agriculture but in a completely different industry. And that's pretty hard to predict. So the people, so it's not so much the predictors. It's more the people who can grab that and move with it instead of saying, oh, it happened five years ago, I didn't know. I think those are going to be more sought after the faster the world moves not the predictors but the surfers.
2: Klaus you've had a in many ways a very interesting life that people will look at and they'll you know already and you know your life can be long but you you have done all these things that are good stories they are a little bit out of the ordinary what are what are some of the things that you We'll look back on and think, you know, this really made me happy, or this is, these are things that I'm really proud
1: of of doing. Well, I mean, first, there's not to discount like the obvious, like I had a long marriage that is now uh, ended, but was many happy memories. I have a daughter. I have an amazing girlfriend. I have th- all this kind of the small stuff that we all have, or <clears throat> or many of us have that is completely commonplace, but to us it's unique. Of course, there's a lot there. And if, but if I have to kind of look beyond that, uh, the, the very personal, then to me, it's the people that have come to me and said, you changed my life in this or this way. That's the one that always gets me. Somebody will write me a mail saying, hey, you probably don't remember, but uh, seven years ago we were at this event and you said this thing and it really resonated with me and it changed my life and how I view this. Thank you for that. And sometimes i'll say did i say that oh that sounds smart and or sometimes i'll say oh i said that that doesn't sound smart at all but i mean one of them was there was a 14 year old kid and, and he's now a young man in his 20s but i got one of these mails and he said hey class you i'm not sure if you remember me but i used to be like one of your role-playing kids and at one point uh apparently i was doing a briefing for these kids and he's like just jabbering behind and apparently without missing a beat i turn around look him in the eye and say, burn in hell. And then I go back to my briefing. And he said for him to be, as a teenager, to be treated like somebody who mattered as an equal in a fun way and yet get told how things were with no bullshit, that was something like that that kind of, wow, that was new for him and that changed some of his outlook and he was really grateful for that moment. And for I have to admit, I thought like, oh, was this my proudest moment? Was this like, yes. do I want to be known as like burning hell teenage guy? Is that is that really what I want to do? But but to him it mattered. And I think these moments where we change somebody's life without even noticing. That's to me, that's that's some of the most powerful. I have that with other people. I I Sometimes I'm the one writing that mail saying, Hey, we had that conversation about this and this, and you said this random off the cuff remark, and it really changed how I saw things. And the other person will be like, have I even met you? Like, do you, (laughs) who are you? Or did we talk about that? And that, that gets to me every time. The random, the random moments that change lives.
2: Play uncertainty and growth. It's a, it's a weird industry to be in.
1: It is, but it's fun, but it is, it is weird. And it's, it's weird when, again, with this innovation, people want to things to be different. They just don't want them to change. And that also gets to how do you sell that sort of stuff? I mean, sometimes yeah. I'm, I, sometimes I'm happy when I sell things like you have a bracelet and you say, use this bracelet has a price. We just need to find out how to sell it because then you're dealing with a thing. But when you're dealing with thoughts and advice and ideas, I sometimes find myself coming to people and saying, hey, uh, I can help you. And then they say, okay, what do you sell? Well, what do you need? And that's a it's a very high trust industry, and that makes it both interesting but also really hard. And sometimes I just wish I sold shoes.
2: I get that. Well, I think you'd be great at selling shoes. It's not a recommendation, but I think that you, you'd do well. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Fascinating. Look, uh, I, I think, you know, your observations are are, are very interesting and they are distinct, uh, you know, from from many, many others, even in, in this field. And uh, so I think that's why people, uh, you know, they flock ar- around you. Um, what I... What I question though is how easy it is for others to get into your mindset. And, and, and I think that is kind of the puzzlement for me is uh, I see how you do it and I see how you, others can get inspired. But, it, but like you say, it, it is so, so hard to um, convince people not only to, to buy into it over time, but to do it themselves right? It's something that if it doesn't come naturally to people, it is difficult. So I, I wanted to just end with that. What, what is your best advice to people who want to embrace and have understood a little bit more now about play and uncertainty and, and the role it plays in growth? What is sort of your, your little one-liner that, that could help them along the way, apart from reading one of your 34 books and, and, and you know, booking you to, to actually experience, experience you in person, uh, shaking them up?
1: I'd say that realize that simple things can be extremely hard. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I teach and what I do is extremely simple. It's not rocket science. You don't need skills. You don't need experience. To do it. The hard part is actually trusting that you won't die from doing it, or you won't be ridiculed, or you won't you won't kind of end up being another person. Or if you do, then it's okay. That's that's the hard part. It's actually Doing it. It's not, the hard part is not finding out like, okay, so you, every morning you take a different sort of juice or you write a different sort of email or you kiss your loved ones in a different way. That's not hard or, the, or that's simple. It's not complex, but doing it is hard. And I think taking one of those things, just, just a small thing and experimenting and trying out something where it's not going to hurt you, something write to a random person on LinkedIn. Somebody that you think you'd like to talk to, write to them tomorrow. Write to them, say, hi, person on LinkedIn. I found your stuff interesting. I'd love to pick your brains for 30 minutes. I am normally afraid of writing these sorts of mails, but now I'm giving it a shot. And then press enter. It doesn't matter if they respond or not. That's not the hard part. The hard part is pressing enter. It's actually daring yourself to say, is it really that simple? Because for some things it's not, but for a lot of them it is. But you'll only find out once you actually press that button. So so press that button. Do whatever it takes to press that button. Make a wager. Get somebody to beat you over the head. Tell the world that you're going to do it because then there's a chance you're going to do it. Promise it to somebody. And then press that button and find out what happens. And most times you're going to find out, okay, nothing happened. It wasn't that, it wasn't that scary. And then you can do it again. Thanks, Klaus. This was uh, this was great.
2: Thanks for for sharing these uh, life lessons. Actually, right?
1: Life for, lessons for in for play. You are you are uh, you are amazing at kind of teasing out enthusiasm. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, it was fun, and now I know how you are without having actually asked you. See,
0: <laughs> all right. You have just listened to episode 108 of the Futurized podcast with host Trondana Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was play, uncertainty and growth. In this conversation, we talked about playful productivity. My takeaway is that using your imagination to to the fullest extent is becoming an important differentiator in the workplace. To many of us, this has to be learned much like anything else in life partly because the rest of our human experience serves to do the opposite, provides incentives to unlearning the childlike approach to learning which is so fundamental for staying flexible. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 123 on regenerative business, Episode 66 on the serendipity of social innovation, or episode 90, upskilling youth for the 21st century bioeconomy, or indeed any of the 20 plus learning episodes of Futurized. Futurized conversations that matter.